Let's take our Bibles and we will turn to Mark chapter 8, the passage that Pete read for us earlier, verses 34 through 38. You know, there's a trend in Christianity today where people view obedience to the Lord as optional rather than obligatory. Many believe that we serve self first, and then whatever's left over is the Lord's. The idea of self-denial and yieldedness to the Lord is foreign to many in the Christian faith. And unfortunately, this view parallels the view of those who do not follow the Lord Jesus Christ or know Him. Noted playwright of the 1860s, Oscar Wilde, said this about self-denial. Self-denial is the shining sore on the leprous body of Christianity. How's that for a viewpoint on self-denial? He was a known hedonist, lived for pleasure, and he viewed self-denial as a bad thing. What we're going to see this morning as we look at the words of our Lord Self-denial is not a bad thing. It's the only thing that we should be thinking about if we're true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not about me. It's about the Lord. And if you take nothing else from the sermon today, take that. Understand that God expects us to abandon self as we follow Him. Now, as we come to the text that we're looking into this morning, in the 34th verse, we find that the Lord Jesus Christ calls a crowd together, and there are a number of people in this crowd. There are some who are casual followers. There are some who are calling themselves disciples. There are some who are somewhat interested in what the Lord has to say, so they want to hear Him out a vast array of people and motivations as he calls this crowd together. But what we find the Lord begin to do is set terms. Set terms for what he defines as a true follower of Jesus Christ. And that's what we want to see this morning. What does Jesus consider to be a true follower of him? Now, you can read as many books as you want to read. You can listen to as many sermons as you want to hear. You can get opinion from those around you on a continual basis, and all of them can talk about what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. But really, what counts is what Jesus has to say. And that's what we're going to see this morning. And what we want to see first is that when Jesus talks about being a true follower of his... He wants us to commit to being a true follower. Now, commitment is something, again, that's kind of foreign to this generation. We don't want to commit to anything. We love leaving things open-ended, kind of waiting to see, and then I'll decide. What Jesus is saying is, choose. Are you going to follow me or not? Because you can't do it both ways. You can't decide, yeah, I'm going to follow the Lord some of the time, sort of placate the guilt and kind of keep the conscience at bay, but for the most part, I'm going to live for myself. 
You can't even say, I'm going to do it 50-50 or 75-25, where it's the Lord himself. What Jesus is talking about is a commitment to him to where we put self aside. We need to come to him as a follower through denial of self. Now, look again at the 34th verse. After it sets the context of this crowd where it says he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, and here's the first point that the Lord makes about denial of self. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It's the first part of that statement I want to look at right now. The denial of self. Now, what is Jesus doing? As Jesus is setting terms for who are the true followers, in a sense, Jesus is sort of culling the herd. His purpose wasn't to see how many followers he could get, and if he had more followers than anyone else, then he was successful. That wasn't his point. Jesus was setting terms. Jesus was saying, if you're really going to follow me, this is what I expect of you. He's laying out for us what it means to be a true follower, not giving lip service to following him, but by our actions, truly following him. And the first step that we have to take in following the Lord is dealing with self. Now, the word that we find here for self What does it mean? It carries with it the idea of all that we are, the person that we are, the old self that is guided and directed by sin, all of those passions and desires that have been pointed toward things other than the Lord, that is the self that we're to deny. We're not to look at ourselves and say, my desires take priority, My passions take priority. If it feels good, I'm going to go and do it. That's not the idea of self. Self Self-denial means I put what Jesus Christ says first and what I want or what I think second. My primary objective is to please the Lord and not me. Now, again, that's foreign to this culture. In our culture, people look to please themselves first. And we get frustrated by that as we interact with people in this society, don't we? We'll have somebody make a commitment to us and then back out on the commitment because, hey, I just decided I didn't want to. Ever had that happen to you? Frustrating, isn't it? They have put self before their integrity and their very word, and it's frustrating. But we find that Christians very often do the same thing. We don't think in terms of what would please the Lord. What does the Lord say about this? How should I operate in obedience to what he says? Those aren't our first concerns. Very often our first concern is, will I enjoy this? Will this be easy? Is this something that I want to do? And then if we feel a pang of conscience, what do we do? We run to the scripture and say, where's the loophole? How can I do what I want to do and find a proof text to say that I can do it? Our chief concern needs to be 
What does the Lord want of me? And we need to understand there is no middle ground. When Jesus is saying that we deny ourselves, he is telling us that we have to make a decision. Do I follow me or do I follow the Lord? And listen, that's a decision that we not only make at the moment of salvation, it's a decision we make moment by moment. Every day we're faced with new challenges. Do I follow me or do I follow the Lord? I must deny myself in the things that are not in keeping with what Jesus has said. That's denial of self. A couple of commentaries had some helpful comments, and I really appreciate these. The first one is this. Deny deny oneself is not to do without something or even many things, It is not asceticism, not self-rejection and self-hatred, nor is it even disowning of particular sins. It is to renounce self as the dominant element in life. It is to replace the self with God in Christ as the object of our affections. It is to place the divine will before self-will. Isn't that a great comment? That's what God wants of us. That's how God wants us to live. Not kind of dabbling our toes in the pool of Christianity, but diving in, going all in. That's the idea. And so many in the church today think that when I follow Christ, I can sort of, you know, test the water with my toes and see whether or not it's palatable, whether or not it's something I really want to engage in. If I really want to appear as though I'm interested in the things of the Lord, I might even go waiting maybe even up to the kneecaps. But I'm not ready to go all in. God wants us all in. That's the idea. Not half-heartedly, not half-engaged, diving into the pool. That's the idea. Listen to this comment in another commentary. One must deny himself decisively, saying no to selfish interests and earthly securities. Self-denial is not to deny one's personality, to die as a martyr, or to deny things as in asceticism. Rather, it is the denial of self, turning away from, now listen to this, the idolatry of self-centeredness and every attempt to orient one's life by the dictates of self-interest. Wow, you know, I read that during the week as I was preparing the sermon, and I just sort of said, ouch. So much of what we do is dictated by self-centeredness and self-interest. God is saying, deny self. Turn away from these things and turn to the Lord. If I am denying self, I will consider of greatest importance the things that God wants of me. My choices will reflect a worldview that views God as preeminent, as most important, not self, not how I'm viewed by others, but how God views me. But then Jesus goes on to make another statement. Not only do I come after him as a follower through self-denial, but I also carry my cross and follow Christ. Look again at that 34th verse. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and... Take up his cross and follow me. Now, some have co-opted this term 
taking up your cross. And they've sort of changed it to mean any inconvenience that we encounter is carrying our cross. Sometimes even the bad results of sinful behavior will be cast as, oh, I'm bearing my cross. Never mind, I did a bunch of sinful, rotten things to get in this predicament. Now that I'm in the predicament, I'm carrying my cross. That's not the idea. Carrying your cross doesn't mean that you're going through trials and difficulties. Sometimes the trials are self-inflicted. And when they're self-inflicted, that's not carrying the cross. The idea of carrying the cross has to be viewed in the context of history. Do you know when Jesus said, each one must carry his own cross, that would have been shocking to a Jewish audience. They didn't have the context of viewing a cross the way we do. When we view the cross, we look back on it and we see it as the instrument of our delivery, the place where our sins were paid for. The cross is something precious to us as believers. But before the crucifixion of Christ, the Jews would have viewed a cross as a place of cursing. Cursed is everything that is hung on a tree. That was their viewpoint. The cross was also something that signified Roman dominance. Do you know when a person was crucified, carrying the cross meant that after their sentence was given to them, they would have to take the crossbar of the cross, carry it on their backs through the streets. If you remember, Jesus did that after he was flogged and he came down and someone took the crossbar for him and carried it for him. But the idea of us carrying a cross really carries with it that idea, that part of Roman punishment to where it demonstrated to society that Rome was over me in complete dominance. That's the idea of carrying the cross. See, the person who had rebelled against Rome and was now being punished carried their cross as a symbol to everyone that I am now in submission to Rome and I'm facing full penalty for rebelling against it. So what does that mean for us as Christians? If we're to carry our cross, what is the Scripture saying? What it's saying is this. Carrying your cross means I am fully submitted to Jesus Christ. It means I carry in obedience what he calls me to do. Now, some have taken this passage and they've said that it means only martyrdom. I think it could include martyrdom, but I think it means so much more. For so many who read this passage, you don't have to face martyrdom. But you know what you do need to face? A decision to submit to Jesus Christ day in, day out, moment by moment. We all face that. Carrying your cross means I will submit to the will of God. He is in absolute authority over me. I will follow what God calls me to do, and even if it means facing death, I will gladly face that as I follow the Lord. Now, many of us would say, yes, I would face death. And that's easy to say when there's not much danger of it in this moment. But carrying the cross as we face decisions during the week, will I do something that I know is disobedient just because I want to? If you carry your cross, you'll say, no, that's not an option. I am in submission to Jesus Christ. 
That's the idea of carrying a cross. And carrying it on a day-to-day, moment-to-moment basis is significant. And look at the words that immediately follow the idea of taking up the cross. Notice it says, and follow me. Now, in our English Bibles, it looks like that's just another description of what we do. But when you look in the original language in which this was written, when it says, follow me, that's in the voice of command. What he's saying is, take up your cross and I command you to follow me. That's what Christ is communicating to those who want to identify themselves as followers. And not only the idea of follow me, but it's a command to keep following me. In other words, it's day in, day out, moment by moment. Listen, you don't take a vacation from your commitment to following Christ. That's the idea. You can't look and say, well, I've been a good boy for this past week, so I'm entitled to this sin. You don't say, you know, I'm a lot better than most other Christians. I don't do bad things like a lot of Christians. So it's no big deal if I dabble in this area over here. No. The idea is yieldedness to God. If we want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, we yield to him. Not my words. These are the words of Jesus Christ. But then the text continues. And as we come to the 35th verse, we find something else. We need to choose which course of life we will follow. We need to make a decision. How am I going to live? And what we see Jesus begin to do is give us a contrast between living for self and living for the Savior. So let's look at this 35th verse. Verse 35 says, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Now, we find Jesus saying paradoxical things a lot of times to make us think. And that's exactly what he's doing here. When he says in this verse, Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. In the original language, if we gave a literal translation to to this, you know what it would say? It would say, whoever wants to save his soul will lose it, but whoever wants to lose his life for me and for the gospel will save it. Soul is the word that we find translated as life in this passage. So you know what Jesus is saying? If you want to hold on to your soul, you're going to lose it. Now, what does he mean by that? Soul encompasses more than just that non-spiritual part or non-physical part of us, the spiritual part of us. The soul is everything about us. It's that person that we are. It's very much like what Jesus said when he said he must deny himself. To forfeit our soul, to give up our soul, means we stop insisting on being the person that we were before Jesus Christ, before we came into that relationship with him. It means that I am willing to become a new person, a new soul in Jesus Christ as he renews me and transforms me and makes me the kind of person that he wants me to be. So, in other words, if I try to hold on to the old me, if there are things that I'm trying to say, I will continue in these things and not change, I don't need to change, I want to be who I am, but I'll add to myself Christianity then we've got it wrong. We don't understand what 
being a follower of Jesus Christ truly means. You can't hold on to who you were and still try to hold on to Christ. There's an abandonment that has to take place. We have to look at ourselves and say, whatever he asks of me, whatever change he seeks to make in me, make it, Lord. Change those things. And these are sobering words. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. If I'm trying to hold on to preserve would be another way of translating the word save. If I want to preserve that self that I was before Christ, then I lose it. I have no part with Christ. That's what's being said in this passage. Strong words that our Lord is giving us. And you know, as Christians, I think we just need to let this sink in a little bit. We need to allow the challenge that Christ gave his disciples and the casual followers and the people who were dabbling and following him in this address that are so characterized by people in Christianity today who are casual followers and dabblers today. I think Jesus would say these same words to us. He would say to us, it's important that we are followers of him, that we deny ourselves, that we come to the place to where we are allowing the old self to pass away, the new self to come. That's what God wants of us. That's what Christ is calling us to do. Then, look at what else we find. Whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. The other side of the coin. If I am willing to allow God to transform me, to change me into the kind of person that he wants me to be, that's where I find true life. We are self-deceived if we think that we can find life apart from Jesus Christ. Why did you become a Christian when you first considered it? Because the life that you had was messed up. You looked at it and you said, I can't live like this. This isn't the way that I want to live any longer. I want to live a new life. I want to live in a new way. Remember that when you're tempted to go back into the old way of living and to live apart from Christ. You left that life. Allow Christ to change you, transform you, make you the kind of person that he wants you to be, and you'll see life as God meant it to be, a life that is abundant. Then we come to verses 36 through 38, the consequences for choosing self over the Savior. Verse 36 is a huge perspective builder. Look at what it says. What good is it if a man gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Do you know what this is? This is the eternal perspective. And what I mean by that is this. When I view life as only in the moment, just the stuff that's happening right now is all that matters, I'm not thinking biblically. 
Biblical thinking looks at life and says, I am only here for a moment when it's compared to eternity. Eternity's forever. This life, barely even the blink of an eye when we compare it to forever. So, suppose I became the richest man in the world. I lived with complete abandonment, doing whatever I wanted to do. Suppose my every whim and every wish was fulfilled. I gained the whole world, but forfeited my soul. Is that a great trade-off? Absolutely not. The 70, 80, 90, wow, you know, even if it's 100 years that we live on this earth, what is that compared to infinity? Nothing. So when Jesus asks this question, he asks us to start thinking eternally. Quit thinking in the moment. Quit thinking about the things that are of value to this world system apart from God and start thinking about the things that really matter, that which is eternal. That's what God calls us to do in this text. But then verse 37 goes on to say, what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Now here's a perspective builder. Can any of us bribe God? How ridiculous is that? He's the creator. If he wants something, he makes it. What can I bring to the table? What can I say to God? Here, I'm buying my soul. Nothing. No amount of power, prestige, wealth. None of that. That means nothing to God. What you have, God allowed you to have. So how can you come to God and say, here, you gave me this, but I'm giving it back in exchange for my soul? It doesn't work that way. It's ridiculous. So again, that's a perspective builder. None of the things of this world or this life can be given in exchange for my soul. But then, to me, one of the most sobering of warnings is found in verse 38. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. Being ashamed of Christ and his words, what does that mean? Now, all of us at some point or another have felt awkward when we're in a group of unbelievers and they start talking about those Christians and we start kind of, you know, slinking down in our seat and we're feeling a little awkward by it. That's not the idea that Jesus is talking about here. To be ashamed carries with it the idea of looking at something and saying it's subpar. It isn't what it was supposed to be. It isn't what I expected it to be. It's not worthy of my following. So what Jesus is saying here is, if we view Christ in that way, you're not worthy of following, 
You're not what I expected you to be, so therefore I'm no longer going to follow you. If those are the viewpoints that we take of Jesus Christ, then when he returns, he's going to be ashamed of us. In other words, he will say, we weren't what we should have been. And that we never measured up to what we could have been. That's the idea. Shame is a terrible thing in the Eastern culture. As a matter of fact, shame is worse than death. So what Jesus is saying in this text is this. If we're ashamed of him in this adulterous generation... He's ashamed of us. And really, when he uses that term or that phrase, this adulterous and sinful generation, it pictures for us the Old Testament. Do you know there are case study after case studies in the Old Testament of people who were ashamed of the Lord because they embraced the idolatry and the worldview of the communities in which they lived. They became ashamed of the Lord and they turned to idols. That's the picture that Jesus is giving us. And you know, as I thought about this passage, I thought about how we, in our day, can also be an adulterous and sinful generation. We abandon following what Jesus says, and we accommodate what the world calls us to be and do so that we sort of fit in and blend in And don't stand out as followers of Jesus Christ. That's not what we're called to do. Obedience first. Then connecting with people around us. That's God's model. And yet today in church after church, in Christian life after Christian life, the idea is blend first and then fit obedience in where we can. We're approaching it in an opposite direction. And it's almost as though we live as though we're ashamed of Jesus Christ. Well, I don't think any of us would say I'm ashamed of Jesus Christ. As I started looking at this, I started wondering, by my actions, do I say that? By the way I behave, By the way, I go along to get along with those around me. Am I demonstrating that I'm ashamed of Jesus Christ? When I bend and I say, I know that this is wrong, I know that God wouldn't have me do this, but you know what? I don't want to be viewed as a prude. I don't want people around me to think that I'm some kind of religious weirdo. So I'm going to go ahead and do what those around me are doing. I'm going to blend in. Am I not by my actions, saying that I'm ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ. As believers, we ought not to live that way. And you know, as, as we read this passage, as we read these words, they're strong words. They're powerful words. They're sobering words. And so my encouragement to you and to myself as I look at these words is to evaluate yourself. Do you live in self-denial or self-interest? Do you live trying to hold on to those things that you know 
aren't a part of your life in Christ, but a part of your old life? By your actions, are you saying, I'm ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ and his words? Or do you stand firm and say, I will follow him. I will do what he asks me to do. Never mind what they think about it. I'm doing it because God is first and foremost in my life. He's the most important person in my life. That's the decision-making that God wants. We must each ask ourselves, am I a true follower of Jesus Christ? I'm not talking about whether you walked down an aisle and prayed a prayer with someone. I'm talking about your life. In your day-to-day life, do you demonstrate that you're a follower of Jesus Christ? That's the question each person has to ask himself. I can't look at your life and make a decision as to whether you are or aren't. That's between you and God. But if you're a follower of Christ, I guess what this passage is saying is this. Act like it. Don't give lip service to it. Live it. That's what God calls us to do. May each of us be true followers of Jesus Christ, living for him, pleasing him in the moment-to-moment decisions that we make, in the worldview that we hold. Let our first question be, is this pleasing to my Lord? Is this what he would have me do in obedience to him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. Lord, it is sobering, but we need to live sober lives, lives that are dedicated and committed to you. May each one of us make that decision moment by moment to follow you as you have called us to. May we keep following you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we prepare our hearts for our communion this morning, singing this song, Behold the Lamb. Behold the Lamb who bears our sins away, slain for us. Behold the Lamb who bears our sins away,